Good morning as we continue our study of how Christ dealt with the forces of evil and how he responded to the situation around him. Our scripture this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 9 through 13. Hear the scripture. This is the calling of a tax collector named Levi or Matthew. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. But when the disciples saw this, or excuse me, the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Christ heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you'd, by your Holy Spirit, bless the understanding and application of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this is a, a simple, well-known text with profound implications. Um, Jesus, we're covering this section where he has authority. Uh, authority as he teaches. Chapter 7, verse 29 says, as he closed the Sermon on the Mount, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. In John chapter 7, this statement, starting in verse 43. And so, so there was a division among the people over Christ. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him, Christ? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. With, so Christ spoke with authority, with power. He, he commanded sickness, and he commanded the demonic, and he commanded the, the, the realm of nature. We've been seeing that in Matthew chapter 8, a centurion whose servant was sick, and Christ says, I'll go to your house, and I'll heal him. And the centurion says, Lord, I'm a, I'm a man under authority. Don't come to my house. Just say the word. And so we read in Luke chapter 8 that Christ says, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Um, Jesus calms the storm. The disciples think they're going to perish. And Christ stands up and he says to the, a storm of tsunami power. He says, peace, be still. And rebuke the winds and the storm ceased. We find Christ dealing with demon-possessed men. And the demons acknowledge that he is God in the flesh. And Christ merely says to the demons, go. And they leave the demon-possessed men and go to a, a herd of pigs. And, and then we have this story from 
Matthew chapter 9, this also in Mark chapter 2, and, and, and we get caught up in all of the uh, details about four men carrying their friend who's paralyzed, and, and Mark tells us that they had to remove tiles from a roof, and so they, they pulled him up on, on the roof, and somehow they were able to, to let him down into the very presence of Christ, and well, I, I speak frequently about your two o'clock in the morning friends who carry you into the presence of Christ, and, and that, that, that's, that's part of the story, but really the, 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 really the main part of the story, don't miss this. Is they lowered the man before Christ, and, and the Lord looks at him, and he says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, and then the scribes and the, said to themselves, This man is blaspheming because only God can forgive sin. Then Jesus says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. To forgive sins, I say, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. And so Christ said, you know, it's, 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 I can say your sins are forgiven, but you don't know his heart. But when I say you're, you, you're, you're healed, you're going to watch him walk out. And so he says he's going to walk out, but I'm doing both. So the main point is Jesus has authority over my sin and your sin. So this God of all authority, now we come to this wonderful passage about the calling of Matthew, the tax collector who was at his booth and he was taking in money and Christ called him. Now, as I studied this passage, I came across this, I've never read it before, that in, in Israel at that time, there were three rings of people who called themselves Jewish. There, the inner ring was what we will call the, the, really the Pharisees. We give the Pharisees a very difficult time, but really they were a a, a party that had come on the scene probably just a few decades before. They were the purity party. They were calling the children of Israel back to the worship of Jehovah God. They're saying, don't violate the first and second commandment of having gods before you and making idols that worship the Lord only. And, and, and in their laws and, and all their regulations, they had departed from the pure worship and become caught up in doing things and, and trying to appear to be more righteous than they really were. But, but, but really, their, their impetus, their, their heart was, was, was good. They were the inner circle. Then there was the, what they call the people of the land. And that's just the common people, like just regular people who, who wanted to honor God. And then there was an outer circle of people who we're not really honoring the Lord. And the outer ring of the outer ring of the outer ring of the outer ring were tax collectors. So, so tax collectors were the really bad people. Let me explain. And you've heard these stories. But <clears throat> Rome was the occupational force. The occupational force, in order to not receive the ire and disgust of the people, had a buffer zone between them and the people when they came to collecting taxes. And they hired local people, Jews, to collect the taxes. If you've studied World War II, it's kind of like, you know, France fell in 1940, and, and France, as they fell to the Germans, three-fourths of all France became part of what we call Vichy France. And so the, 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 the Nazis as much as they could, tried to put in local French people who were called collaborators who would represent the Nazis to the French people. And after the war was over, it went very badly for those collaborators. Well, these, these tax collectors were collaborators in the worst sense of the word. And, and, and so when we think about tax collectors, our mind in America goes to what? 
IRS, which is totally unfair. I mean, we, we laugh about the IRS. We have IRS jokes. For example, if an IRS agent and a jihadist are both drowning and you can only save one, do you eat your lunch or read a newspaper? It's a joke. Okay. So, but that is, that is really totally unfair. I mean, our IRS system is made up of, of people who pursue ethical things. There are codes and there are regulations. For example, in 2013, we had something called the, the IRS targeting controversy, which said the IRS, one agent in particular, and her division were targeting conservative groups and trying to mess with their tax-exempt status. And it was a huge, huge furor, congressional hearings, an exhaustive investigation. But listen, it's the, the it's 2013 IRS targeting controversy. So if it's a controversy, it's outside of the norm. So we should be glad we live in a, in a culture that, that where our tax agents are people of ethical standing. But, but there was no controversy here. There was only graft and corruption. Because what happened is the, the, the Romans would say to tax collectors, you must get this much tax and give it to us. And everything above that you put in your pocket. And so you became despised. You became belittled. You had to watch over your shoulder at night so that you weren't hunted down and, and done physical violence to. But you became very wealthy. You had beachfront property all over the place. You drove the latest import. You were very wealthy. But you had no friends. You're an outcast, and that's what Matthew is. He's a tax collector. It is the most horrendous place you can be. And so when Christ is teaching in Luke chapter 18, uh, and he's trying to drive home the glory of sins forgiven and the glory of grace, he uses one of his well, most well-known parables by talking about the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisees. Just a few verses, let me read them in Matthew chapter 18. It's a parable, tax collector, Pharisee. So he told a parable so that some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated us with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But, Jesus says, the tax collector Standing far off will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went home to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, let me, let me we read that and we go, yeah, I've read that. If you are a Jew sitting there, you just passed out and you need smelling salts. There is a universal, unbelievable gasp. Are you telling me that tax collectors can be made right in the presence of the living God? Are you kidding me? And, and, and Pharisees cannot. That is a scandalous statement. And that's exactly what this passage tells us. A tax collector named Levi or Matthew is called. Now, I'm going to give you several points in this text. Just pray God gets it home. But let me ask you this question. 
there's a gap between the first verse of this passage, which is verse 9, and the rest of the passage. Jesus calls Matthew, follow me, and then there's a gap. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. So Matthew throws a party. And, and, and he, he throws the party and he invites his friends. And his friends are other tax collectors and sinners. You invite your friends. And his friends were the untouchables on the outer links of society. And he, he invites them to his house and they, they have a party. The Pharisees are outside of the party. They, they weren't there because to be there would make them impure. They are outside with the party, basically with their iPhones taking pictures of all, everybody that goes in there and writing down the license plates of all the people at the party so they can expose them. And so when the disciples come out, they say, why in the world are you guys and your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners and, and the unwashed of society? But they threw a party. And my question as I look at this is why was Jesus and the disciples, why were these disciples invited? Uh, why? And here's my answer. Because Jesus was a man of grace and love and embrace. When you've tested, and your disciples, when you've tasted grace, you love people. Just when you've tasted the grace of the forgiveness of sins, you love people. Jesus loved people. The disciples loved people. There's a story in Luke, in John chapter 2. Jesus is at a wedding. It's a great story. And the, the, the wedding has gone long, the wine is gone, and, and Jesus' mother says, we need some help here. And we know from history that, that the water pots in those days contained um, 25 to 30 gallons. And so there's six water pots there. And so Jesus turns the water into wine. And the host comes and says, man, this is the best wine we've ever had. Now, there's a guy named William Barclay who's a, a wonderful biblical exegete. If you want to do exegetical study on the New Testament, he does a great job with words and syntax. But his theology is sometimes lacking. He's, 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 he's sometimes lacking. And he, he writes about this passage and he says this, there is no way this happened because no one would ever need 180, so it's going to be 180 gallons, 140 to 180 gallons of wine at a wedding. So it's, a, a crude literalist will accept this, but that's really not the spirit of the text. And I'm just going to go, I'm a crude literalist. I, I believe Jesus really turned um, six stone pots of 150 to 100, 180 gallons into wine to make a statement. And the statement is this, you can never exhaust the mercy of Jesus. You can never can. It's, it's something to, to celebrate. There's a guy named H.L. Mencken, who is a famous writer in Baltimore, and he said this. He says, Puritanism is a haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Now, as I study Puritan history, that is so far from the truth. Mencken wasn't a believer and he liked to have fun with, non, with Christians. Puritans were happy people. Listen, I read this, I read the party for me and I say, listen, I recommend joy. The New Testament recommends joy. The scripture recommends joy. There's another tax collector named Zacchaeus. You know the wee small man climbed up in the sycamore tree? Remember that? 
And it's a, Jesus calls him down, and they have a big party, and Zacchaeus says, Lord, if I've, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and he had, I will restore it four times over. And Jesus laughs and says, salvation has been visited on this house. You know, I, I, I thought, why, why was Zacchaeus so happy? Why? Let me just mention two things. Number one, Zacchaeus realized that his sins had been forgiven. That makes you happy. He was a tax collector. He just was happy that it was washed away. And the second reason I think Zacchaeus was happy, when you spend time in the presence of Christ, you understand he's in control and he holds your future. You know what? You get happy. So listen, I recommend, the New Testament recommends happiness, joy, thanksgiving, because we serve a great God who turns water into wine in such a preponderance that it never runs out. I think of John chapter 4. I'll get to the text in a minute. I'll get there. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus says, I can give you water and you'll never thirst again. And she's been drawn up water and it's a feverish pursuit. It's noonday. It's hard work. And she says, Lord, give me this water. And Jesus says, no, the water I speak of, he says in verse 14, is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I love that. It's a spring of water. It's not the well, it's the spring. See, if you get some land and there's an old well there, you can just bulldoze debris and dirt into it and smooth it over and it's done. But if it's a spring, it just pushes through the dirt. The, the, the joy of Jesus pushes through stuff. My sin, my indifference. So I, I recommend joy. Matthew threw a party. So should we. So I'm going to give you four points very quickly and then an application. Number one, in, in the other two synoptic gospels, Luke and Mark, Matthew is called Levi. We believe Jesus changed his name to Matthew. Levi to Matthew. Matthew means gift of God or gifted of God. Some, some of my favorite people I've ever known are named Matthew. It's a great name. It is a great name. And I just, I just rejoice, church, that God is in the business of changing Levi's to Matthew's and Cephas to Peter and Saul, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the brokenhearted apostle of the cross of Jesus. And he's changing us today. 2 Corinthians 3, he's transforming us by his spirit. God is changing us. He changed Matthew. Some of you who aren't believers, God is going to change your life as you get the gospel. That's what God does. He, he, he changes us. Number two, Matthew used his circles of relationship to introduce people to Christ. Who, who did he invite to his party? His buddies. His buddies, former other tax collectors and the, kind of the, the outer ring, the people that were rejected and so you use your, you use your relationships to, to, do, to do these things. God has, in his kingly wisdom, placed you in your family, in, in your neighborhood, in your school or your work situation, and in your pursuits and hobbies so that you can represent him. You are, listen, you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And he, he's, he's put you there. There, there. there are people in your circles that have never really heard the gospel. It's amazing, but it's true. It, it's, so I asked you last week to ask someone, 
just who do you think Jesus was? So I, I talked to one guy, or one guy that I talked to this week. I, I see him frequently. I'll, I'll see him this week, and uh, I think. And I said to him, I said, oh, I'm, we're doing a survey in our church. Do you mind if I ask you a question? No, no. Who do you think Jesus was? He goes, wow. He said, you know, I, I was raised in the Northeast. I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, and uh, I haven't gone to church in years. He said, but, but I, I believe that there is a God. And I'm not really sure who Jesus was, but I believe there's a God. Because I, I, I cannot live with, with the concept of death being all there is. So I have some friends who just say you die and that's it. So I, I just, I find that utterly depressing. So I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I believe there's a God. You know what I said? What'd I say? That's interesting. That's interesting. Thanks for talking to me. Now, this week I'm gonna go back and here's your next question. See, next question. Do you believe Jesus was more than a teacher? And after he answers this week, and I'm going to say, wow, that's interesting. See, Easter's April 21st. I want us to build up to having people that we just talk to about Christ because they're going to be thinking about it. I mean, he's Catholic. He's not practicing or he'd be involved in, involved in Lent, but he has that background. So, so, so use your circles. Practice hospitality. There's nothing more glorious than having people over for for, for a meal. That's what, that's what Matthew did. Just come, come on, guys. Come on. Number three, uh, Matthew had table fellowship with, with these people. Now, Jesus had table fellowship. In the, in, the, in, the, in the scripture, table fellowship is a sign of intimacy. If you're eating with someone, you recline at the table, it's a sign of friendship and intimacy. This is a strong statement. Jesus and the disciples were reaching out to people who were outcast. And they were sitting with them. And they were enjoying their company. And, and, and they, were, they were there. It was, it's an incredible statement. I need to have table fellowship, friendship with people that really are, don't have much hope. Think about, think about the glory of the gospel. When Jesus' birth was announced by the angels in Luke 2, who did they appear to? Shepherds. Shepherds were from on the lower rung of their culture. Shepherds could not testify in a court of law. They were day laborers only maybe. When the resurrected Christ was announced, who were the first people that were told about the resurrected Christ? Women, women, I mean, women, again, they were less than men, but the Bible elevates women and says that we're all made in the image of God. So, but it's women. When you, when you think about uh, any, any vestige issue of racism or nationality or zip codeism is destroyed by the gospel. Listen to this statement. This is in Luke chapter uh, 4. Christ is speaking, uh, verses 25 and following. Just listen to this. This is, Christ says, I tell you in truth, he's talking to a bunch of, of Jews in the synagogue. Okay, in the synagogue. He just read the scroll of Isaiah, put it back, and he's lecturing. He says, I tell you the truth, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet, when the heavens were shut for three years and six months. And a great famine fell upon the land. And Elijah the prophet was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Stop. Gentile territory, Gentile woman. And Jesus says, behold, the great prophet Elijah went to one widow, a Gentile. And then he says this, and there was, that there were many lepers in the land of Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, who came right after Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Stop. Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. Now, now if, if you're a Jew sitting there, you're going, you're, you're going crazy. Well, this is, what, this is what happened. Listen. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They want to kill him. How dare you say these things? So I say to us, to understand the glory of grace. C.S. Lewis had an excellent little article in a book called God in the Dock, I think it was. Anyway, Lewis, during, during World War II, this is during World War II when, when for years Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany. There was an Anglican vicar who gave a sermon, and he said that all cultures throughout history have said they were the best or the highest. And then he said this. He said, but of course, if one says that about England, they're right. And Lewis wrote this. He said, what did that make him? And he said, it made him an ass. A lovable old ass, but an ass all the same. Now he's talking about an animal burden. So I'll just change the words a little bit. It made him a fool. And now a lovable fool, because Lewis loved England. And he loved the, the, the people of England and, and, and really what he's called the righteous cause of World War II. But he said, you, you can't say it. So if somebody were to say here, I mean, I, I love my country. I love America. But if we were to say America is the best country that has ever existed, what would that make us? Fools. Lovable fools, because I love America. But fools all the same. Or if you were to say the most gracious people in the world are Southerners, what would that make you? A fool. I'm a Southerner. A lovable fool. Uh, so be very careful about that. If you were to say the, the, the most rude people in the world are from New York, what would that make you? Discerning. But that's beside the point. Um, I'm just kidding. If you, what, if you were to say the most, the most magnanimous, manly, gracious men who, in our culture are Citadel graduates from 1970, finally you can say someone is telling the truth around here for a change. But that type of thing. I, mean, I just think you have to be, we have to be very careful. Very careful that we understand the glory and the grandeur of grace, and that we glory in the cross. I had an experience this week that you, I just shook my head. There's a dear woman, and she was talking to a group of people. I, had to be, I was listening. I was there, but I mean, wasn't in the conversation really. And she said that we just adopted a rescue dog. I love dogs, and so then she said, and you know, we want to know what his background was. So we got some hair. And we sent it into a DNA lab, 
and it only costs $69. And we now know what makes up our mutt. And I was going, this was fun. It's part rat terrier, is that, this is all? Part rat terrier, part uh, Siberian husky, part beagle, and part basset hound. That is one sad dog. <laughs> Very confused dog. But I just laughed and I thought, that's, that's hilarious. People have said to me, have you ever thought about doing a DNA kit? So, well, I mean, you send in your DNA and you are told what your heritage is. And it said, it only costs $300. I said, no. No, I haven't thought about doing that. I'm not going to. Because it's going to come back and it's going to say I'm part this and part this and part this and part this. I, I know that. But let me tell you, I may be part this and part this just like you, but the, the, the greatest thing in my life is I am one Hundred percent a child of God by the blood of Christ. I own. I'm, I'm owned by Jesus. I'm never going to be cast out. I'm going to be eternally loved, and, I, and that that is my joy. That is who I am. I don't want to forget that. And so I just I say to us, brothers and sisters, don't forget that. In two weeks, we're going to have. Foster and Adoption Sunday. Man, I was leaving the early, the first service in the worship center. There's a couple back there, a little baby, a little, little, little baby. And I said, who's this? Oh, we adopted her six days ago. Six days ago. I went, oh, she's just a few, couple months old. I went, oh. And my heart just started singing. And I said, thanks be to God. So, so Foster and Adoption Sunday, and we should celebrate that. But let me, in a way, when you, spiritually speaking, every Sunday is Adoption Sunday. Every Sunday. Every Sunday we glory in the cross and we glory in our adoption, an adoption that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We rejoice in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to this. He says that when the time to fully come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the, the adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are Sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, and we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. Fourthly, the call of Christ always leads to follow me. It's easy to miss this. So please hear this. Please hear, hear this. So, so we go to this text and we go to the statement about Zacchaeus or we go to the woman at the well or whatever and we say Jesus loved the marginalized and walked with them and embraced them absolutely all the time, all the time. But listen, listen, the call of Christ always pushes you into the light, whether you've been a believer for 40 years or you're coming to faith. It always pushes you to a life of repentance and faith. And it's easy to miss that in this text. He says, follow me. Leave your, leave your table. Leave your tax booth. Follow me. I, th I, think of, I think of John chapter 5. He says to the man who had been healed after 38 years of being an invalid, he says, stop sinning or something else might happen to you that's much worse. Or, or the woman in, in John chapter 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And she's brought and thrown at the feet of Jesus and her accusers say the law of Moses says she must be stoned. What do you say? Well, first thing I'd say is, where's the dude? That's one thing. But Jesus knelt down and he wrote in the sand. And as he wrote, the people melted away. I don't know what he wrote, but boy, they left. And he looks up and he says, 
dear woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone, Lord. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go your way and sin no more. Don't, don't go back to your life of morality if you've been touched by grace. So, so, so what I'm saying is if, as we walk with people, listen, somewhere along the way we, we have to say, you know, this is what the Bible says. And let me point you to the relentless logic of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's right. The church of Corinth was one messed up church. I mean, they were just a messed up group of people. And I mean, all types of immorality, divisions, improper use of spiritual gifts. I mean, they were just really, so he writes this to them as he celebrates the greatness of the forgiveness of sins. And he says this, and it's in your worship guide. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this. And such were some of you. Now, some of you are, are, were, were all types of sexual sinners, and you were swindlers, and you were thieves, and you were extortioners, but you've been touched by the grace of Christ. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So let me give you, a, 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 just help you understand, uh, this is a kind of strange example, but it says here that the greedy, so if you are a greedy person who swindles people and you don't repent, you can't claim to be a believer in Jesus. It's a false profession. Therefore, if you befriend a man who is the battery king of Charleston, and he has this, I know this doesn't exist, but he has a, 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 an agreement that, that nobody can sell batteries for a 50-mile circumference around his store. Therefore, we all need batteries. He's selling his batteries. And everyone knows he buys the batteries here. He should sell them here for profit, but he sells them here. He's just abusing people. He's an extortioner. He's a swindler. He's a greedy man. And, and, and he has... 15 houses on oceanfront property, and he's very wealthy, but, but he's, and you get to know him, and he does that to other things in his store, and he's just known as a greedy man who swindles, and you become his buddy. You, you may be one of few people that want to be his buddy. If you walk with him, and you do not say to him, after a little while in your relationship, hey, hey listen to me, I, I got to be honest with you, the Bible says very clearly there's a heaven and there's a hell. And, and the Bible says that you're only saved by the work of Jesus. And it says that a sign of being saved by Jesus is you want to please him a life of obedience. And it, the Bible says that, that greedy swindlers don't go to heaven. It doesn't, being a good man who practices business ethics doesn't save you. The cross saves you. But a manifestation of that work is you want to be ethical in the way you treat people. And if you say, no, I don't want to offend him. I just want to be his buddy and hang out with him and... And he dies. His blood is on your hands. See, God saves us to love people, but we always call them to go into the cross. Do you understand? That's in the text. So let me talk to you about the, the see, this follow me. It always, it always leads to going deeper into the light, taking a step into the light. I love to talk to people about sports, and they'll talk about who's the best coach, 
Who did this? Who did that? And invariably, when they talk about really good coaches, people who know the game of football or basketball especially, will say one reason he or she was a great coach is they made incredible halftime adjustments. And they, they, would just go, they would just make halftime adjustments, and they, they would just do things differently and come out. And, and, and uh, to me, that's another way of looking at repentance. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is as I read the Word of God, whether I'm coming to faith in Jesus or I've been there for 40 years, is I am willing to make adjustments because of the power of the Word of God in my life. So follow me. Now, let me talk about three, three types of people in this text. Three people. Number one are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are working hard to become worthy. They are working feverishly to become worthy. They're, they're giving it all they have to become worthy in the sight of God, and they're self-deceived. And, and, and so Jesus looks at them, and he says to these men, many of whom had memorized the whole Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, basically. He says, go and learn this, which is the ultimate put down. Hosea says, I want mercy, not only sacrifice. I have come not to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. So they were feverishly working their way into the presence of God. Hear me. Every Religion in the world lives at this zip code. Islam, I want to be a worthy Muslim. Hinduism, I want to live in such a way that I will come back in, in a higher life form in the transmigration of life. Same with Buddhism. The offshoots of the Christian faith that, that are, have missed the mark, the, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the same thing, a worthy Mormon, Jehovah Witnesses, you name it. There is only one system of thought when it comes to faith that says you receive an empty gift or, or a gift given to you by someone who purchased the gift on the cross for you. What you can never do, the living God did for you in the person of Christ, fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that is the Christian faith. And so, so that's why when we sing the hymn, dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow I can be today. Do you get that? There are people here today. I know you're, I, you're here. And, and you're, you're just thinking, if I just live long, hard enough, and if I do this and I do that, maybe God will love me. You'll never get there. It's only the cross. It's only the goodness of Christ. See, the problem with joining a monastery is that other people are there. And we're all sinners. And, and, and many of us, many of you are Pharisees. All of us, by and large, all of us are recovering Pharisees. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful club because it's centered around the cross. And then there's a second group, and that is the attendees at the party. The attendees at the party were the tax collectors and the immoral people and the broken people, and, and, and they were despairing and cynical. You know, you get to a point in your life where you say there's no hope and you become cynical. There's no answers. You just despair and you become cynical and you start belittling other people, and that, that's, that's, that's how you live. They're just saying, hey, I'm here, but... I read a book on poverty this week, and it's a very interesting book. And the writer says that there, he says, three broad reasons for poverty. Number one are systems that are broken. 
and people would feel trapped in a system. Or two, there's a calamity that befalls them that they just can't get over. Or thirdly, they're just bad choices that leads to poverty. No, I, just, I just thought, you know, said to myself, self, don't ever, ever forget that you're born in a family with a mom and dad who loved you, who wanted you to have a good education. Don't ever forget you live in a land of opportunity. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that even in our land of opportunity, there are systemic disorders that hold people down and pursue justice. But don't ever take for granted what the Lord has done, just on a basic level. I was thinking about this, and I remember an article I was putting a file, and it came from the Wall Street Journal about a month and a half ago. It says, Bangladesh fire shows safety shortfalls. In Bangladesh, there was a fire in a, in a T-shirt factory, and the, the, the windows were nailed shut, and there was no exit, and so 70 people burned to death. And this is in the city of Dhaka, a city of 20 million people, folks. And it says that last year there was the same fire in the same area and 120 people burned to death. And this is in 2013, the garment factory collapsed and killed 1,100 people. And the safety regulations are ignored. And I thought, the people in Bangladesh, listen, Bangladesh is a nation that's about 20% bigger than South Carolina, and the population is 161 million people. Our population is about 4.95 million, I think. Unbelievable. And I thought, what if, if you're living in Bangladesh and you live in a place with no safety precautions and there's basically no education and about every three years a typhoon hits your city and wipes it off the face of the map and there's no insurance safety net? How do you live? You, you don't have monthly goals or weekly goals. You're not worrying about your IRA or your safety net or whatever. You're just trying to survive. And so when calamity hits, it's, so I, I, I say that to say that that. that Look at people who are despairing and realize they're, they're living in sometimes places of deep sorrow and deep brokenness. And then there's the third group. That's Matthew. Where Jesus looks at a man in a tax collector's booth and he says this, follow me. That's it. And I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know if Matthew had, had all that much exposure to Jesus before this encounter. But he got up and he left everything. And he followed Jesus. He followed Christ. I, I look at this and the, the whole statement, the whole issue of regeneration or being born again into the kingdom of God or being, having a salvific relationship with the Lord, going from darkness to light, is a great mystery to me. John 3 says the wind blows where it wishes. And so I, sometimes... The salvation experience happens in a flash. Sometimes it's a long process. But listen, there comes a point, there comes a point where you cross the line from trusting yourself and believing you're going to do it to understanding that Jesus did it for you. So somewhere you cross the line. I'm just talking about this week I was thinking about my experience. Let me share it with you in about one minute. But I, I, was, I was raised um, in a home where the gospel was not preached. Sweet parents. And so I mocked, I mocked people in high school who believed because most of the people that talked about Christ were part of the quote, the Bible club were nerds. 
They were, they were nerds. And I was a jock. Take it by faith. I was, okay. And so, and so I mocked them. Much to my sorrow. I go to the Citadel and I, I meet the real deal. Became my best friend. A guy who just lived for Christ as an 18-year-old. And this guy kept inviting me to Bible study. I mean, from September, November, January, February, March, finally in March, I finally said, okay, I will go to Bible study. So I went to Bible study. I had an old King James Bible my mom had given me, and I took that. And didn't know anything. And they're singing songs about the cross, and they're singing songs about Jesus. And, and they start this Bible study, and I'm listening, and there are some really nice guys there, pretty cool. And so I go back four or five weeks. I mean, I mean five weeks, I've been there going back five weeks every Tuesday night. And I remember leaving one night and looking up into the sky and saying, a great God made all of this. Wow. That's, that's a pretty deep thought for me at that time. That's about as deep as it gets. God, there's a great God who made this. So I, I, I still hadn't stepped across the line. About five weeks later, I go to chapel. And they're, they're singing about Jesus and talking about Jesus. And I'm going, well. and there's a, a cadet preaching. I don't know why a cadet's preaching, but he was. And he stands up and he says, there is, the Bible says that God is love. He's all pure. He's holy. He's eternal. He's unchanging. And he, he's our, he wants to be our shepherd. Over, over here, the Bible says that we are sinners and that the wages of sin is death and that eventually we will die and face judgment. So we're separated by this huge chasm. And the, there's a bridge called the bridge to life, and the bridge is the cross of Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That was it. I went. I got it. See, I said, I got it. Jesus died for me. All of a sudden, the hymns they're singing and the, the Bible studies started making sense because I understood that Jesus was God in the flesh who died on the cross for my sin. So sometimes on that Sunday morning, I, I it wasn't deeply emotional. It wasn't right in the sky. I stepped over the line from not from believing that the God is, and I don't know how to find him to, God is Jesus. At that time, I had no concept of the Trinitarian nature of God, which is wonderful. I had no concept of the, the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's eternal God and he's also man. I had, that, that wasn't there. I just knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And, and that's, that's the message that we want to get out. And, and that's why God's placed you where he's placed you, in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your dormitories. In your families. Behold the greatness and goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this story about a, a, a maybe a ruthless, self-serving collaborator named Levi who was changed to Matthew. Thank you that this collaborator wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you that this tax collector who was basically defrauding his fellow Jews became a broken-hearted disciple of Jesus. And thank you for doing that 
today. And, and Lord, thank you that Matthew leveraged his relationships to such a way that he was able to speak of the reality of Christ to those around him. May we do the same. Thank you that in the midst of his relationships, the relationships of the Bible, that, that the apostles, as they loved people and embraced them, always pointed them to the, to the cross. May we do the same. And thank you that you are saving men and women today and use us. Lord, help us, help us to be your people. Really, we, we want, as Easter approaches, help us to pray and be praying for two, three people that we want to just talk to. Help us just to have conversations with people and, and, and ask them uh, questions and, 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 and get to know them. So we, we, we thank you for this little story. We thank you for loving tax collectors and people that are strung out on substance abuse. And thank you for loving self-righteous, upright, exclusive uh, Pharisees like so many of us have been. And thank you for taking the scales from our eyes and letting us see our sin. Because as we see our sin, we can see the beauty of the Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.